This is First Date Stories, the podcast, the show where women in their late 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond talk all about the first dates they've been on. From the wildly successful to the completely disastrous and everything in between. Here's your host, Jody Klein, founder of FirstDateStories.com. Welcome to this special episode of the podcast. All of the episodes up to this one have featured conversations that I've had with women about their first dates and the wonderful, bizarre, heartwarming, funny, and completely unexpected things that have happened. On this episode, we're shifting gears. And instead of talking about the details of a date, we'll be talking about what may be going on with each of us psychologically and biologically when we go on a date. We're going to touch on a whole array of topics that have to do with the science behind relationships, love, and dating so that you can get more in touch with and aware of the reasons you do what you do and feel what you feel when you're on a date or starting a relationship. We're not just going to talk about the female side of things, though. We're also going to talk a bit about the guy's perspective. Our guide and my guest this episode is Dr. Marissa Cohen. She's the author of From First Kiss to Forever, A Scientific Approach to Love. Marissa and I will be delving into some of the book's topics during our conversation and we'll be covering other subjects as well. Marissa is a relationship researcher and an associate professor of psychology. Her research focuses on first date successes and consensual non-monogamy. She's also a first date stories contributor you can find Marissa's articles on an array of interesting topics at firstdatestories.com. Welcome, Marissa. I'm delighted you've come on the podcast to share with us what actual scientific research has uncovered about love and relationships. Thank you so much for having me. I am so curious. How did you become a relationship researcher? My path to examining relationships is a bit unconventional, but I'll give you a sense of how I got here. I'm going to start all the way at the beginning just to give you a complete picture. I was always interested in academia and I originally started out as a biology major with an education minor in college and I was planning on pursuing a PhD in microbiology. As much as I love the field, I became more interested as a result of participating in some undergraduate psychology experiments in research with human subjects. I wound up pursuing a PhD in educational psychology, so in a way, I was studying relationships, but it was relationships between students and their teachers, as well as students and their learning communities. During this time, in my personal life, I was online dating and many of my friends were asking for dating advice as they were pursuing their own relationships as well. I also took a human bonding continuing education course, which solidified my passion for the field. I started to realize that I needed to transition, but I wasn't sure exactly how to do it. So I began with some crossover research between educational psychology, the field that I was in, and relationship science, the field that I was planning on pursuing. My earliest studies focused on the relationship between a learner's intrinsic motivation to succeed and how much that individual values traits related to academics and education in his or her partners. Eventually, I just kept moving on into the relationship science field, and that's where I am today. So fast forward a little bit, in fall 2014, I co-founded a relationship science lab, and we focus on various facets of relationships. 
we study what makes relationships survive and thrive. And as you mentioned, we also focus on perceptions of our approach to dating, as well as consensual non-monogamy. I often do talks on relationship science, and I even wrote a book in the area, because I just love explaining ways that we can use data to help us inform our everyday lives to improve not only our romantic relationships, but our friendships as well. It was quite a journey that you were on as you evolved your education and just kind of got pulled forward towards understanding relationships and helping people kind of dissect what's happening with them and, you know, not having it just be some mystery, but trying to provide the truth behind what is happening <laughs> as we come together, right? Yeah, to whatever extent possible. <laughs> to whatever extent possible. So uh, why don't we start out with a big topic? Let's talk about romantic love. That concept that can be so complicated, but can also, and I mean, really should be so simple, right? <laughs> what what is love from a scientific perspective? What what happens physically and cognitively to someone when she or he falls in love? So love is so complex and there are so many different approaches to understanding it. You can look at it from a philosophical viewpoint. You can look at it, at it from a psychological or a biological viewpoint. So I'm going to just try to break it down a bit. When I think of dis discussing love from a psychological perspective, I immediately start to think of the difference between what we view of infatuation and compassionate love and how this influences our behaviors and our thoughts. So for example, in the beginning of a relationship, people are often in the honeymoon phase. That's when we're completely infatuated with our partner and we view the world through rose-tinted glasses. While this is an incredibly wonderful and happy time, it can also be really problematic. For example, we might overlook certain signals that the person is sending us, or red flags, if you will. And if we aren't building up a really strong base beneath that surface of just infatuation and that honeymoon phase, when this period ends, the relationship is going to come to an abrupt halt. If instead we build up a strong base of compassionate love, which is very similar to friendship, then you'll have a long-lasting and loving relationship. So that's just kind of looking at it from a psychological viewpoint. Biologically, you have neurotransmitters such as dopamine, which can activate our reward center, and that's being produced when we're in love. So when people say that love is like a drug, they're being truthful here. We're also producing serotonin, which can elevate our mood, and it floods our system when we're experiencing love. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention oxytocin. And oxytocin is a hormone. It acts as a neurotransmitter in the brain, and it plays a huge role in human bonding. It's often referred to as a love hormone, the bonding hormone, or even the cuddle chemical, which I absolutely love. And um, it's secreted in association with uterine contractions during labor, the production of milk uh, from the mother to the child, and it's often thought to play a role in the initiation of maternal bonding and behavior. In addition, levels of oxytocin rise when we hug or kiss a loved one, and research has even shown that oxytocin increases when we play with our dogs. So you're having a flood of hormones, so biologically we're changing when we're in love, our behaviors are changing, our thoughts are changing, and that's just looking at it from two different perspectives. But rather than going on and on, I'll just I'll leave it there for now. That is so interesting. 
I'm wondering then, since you've got the psychological part uh, happening with the hormones and the biological changes happening, if we really do fall in love at first sight, you know, we see these movies where it's immediate, they fall in love, you know, at first sight, but, but does love at first sight really happen in the real world? <sighs> I feel like people want me to say yes to this because like you said, there's there's kind of this romantic movie-like quality to love at first sight. It's like something you would picture where someone's going to just come up to you with a bouquet of roses and have one of those flash mob dances and propose to you or something. And the answer is kind of yes and no, because we really need to think about what is love really? If love involves a deep connection, that just simply can't be made in an instant. Now, it's possible to become infatuated or completely enamored with a person at first glance. And there is evidence to suggest that love at first sight does exist if we're conceptualizing love in this way. But this doesn't necessarily mean that this is going to translate into a long-lasting and loving relationship. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that we as human beings, we're capable of forming first impressions really quickly. And from these first impressions, we can sometimes gauge how we feel about another person in milliseconds. Now, this might be an accurate assumption or it might be inaccurate, but essentially what's happening with love at first sight, it's just passionate love. It might feel wonderful. It might seem wonderful. But as I mentioned earlier, if you aren't building that strong base of compassionate love underneath, when the passion dies down, the relationship is over. So it's not building like a relationship at first sight because you really need that trust and that commitment. And that's something that takes time. Now, sometimes when you hear love at first sight, just to kind of go off on a little bit of a tangent, people sometimes mention a spark and the term spark can be used in a variety of different ways. Sometimes people say that there was a spark at the instant we first met, and essentially this can be love at first sight. But if you're referring to it as like there was no spark between us, that kind of means chemistry and connection, and there's so much more than that like initial beginning. You spoke about how people need to establish this strong basis of compassionate love for the relationship to have a strong footing and to evolve and grow. Many of the women listening to us talk have probably been in a relationship at some point, or maybe they're coming out of one right now as they're listening, um, and, or they're healing from a breakup that was recent. What does science say about why it's so hard to move on from breakups? I actually really love Diane Vaughn's work in this area. She does a lot of research on the process of uncoupling, and she kind of views the process of breaking up, and yes, it is a process, it takes time, as you know, a process, an interpersonal process between an initiator and a partner. And it's the initiator who's the first person to express some sort of displeasure or an issue with the relationship, and that's the person who really wants out. And what essentially is happening here is that the initiator is going through the process of removing him or herself from the relationship and starting to experience a single life from that secure base of still being in the relationship 
Well, the partner essentially has no clue. And when the partner is finally clued into the fact that the relationship is over, that person can be taken by surprise. And this makes the healing process much, much more difficult for the partner because it kind of catches them off guard. So essentially the initiator can enact preemptive strategies while still in that safety of the current relationship to ease the transition. Um, and, And the partner really doesn't have that ability to do so. And other research has shown that there are many factors that can lead to experiencing more pain in the aftermath of a breakup. And some of those can be the amount of commitment that you experience in the relationship, the duration of the relationship comes into play, and the length of time since that relationship has ended. And the emotional experience in your healing process can really also depend upon how costly the end of that relationship was for you. Um, And in turn, this could be a result of your age or what you're originally looking for in the relationship. So were you looking to get married or is this something that was just good for that point in time in your life? If someone was just in it for the short term, of course, the breakup's not going to be as difficult. Also, if you find out that you have a large pool of potential others to choose from, think about like a high school or a college student where you're surrounded by many single individuals, then that process is also going to be a lot less painful. And of course, gender differences can come into play. We know a lot from emotion and gender research that women tend to be more emotionally responsive. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that women tend to be better at decoding others' emotions. And they also tend to be more empathetic and likely to express as empathy. So the way in which we express our emotions and deal with them can also affect how we process the breakup. So there's a lot of different factors that really come into play and and how we experience it, and also why it's so difficult to move on. With a breakup behind you, it's time to get out there and date again. So (laughs) let's move on to talking about getting back into the dating scene. And to do that these days, online dating is going to be an option for every woman to consider, right? It's so pervasive, online dating and dating apps. But people are really busy today, and... There's a lot of shenanigans that goes on on those platforms. I'm gonna, you know, I'll paraphrase it as shenanigans, okay? So there are some who wonder how likely it is that they're going to meet someone, the right someone, uh, online versus in person. Is there data that shows the likelihood of meeting your future long-term partner in person versus online? I thought it was interesting how you brought up shenanigans, and while I wish I can say that these don't occur on the online app or dating site platforms, they do, which is unfortunate. And because of that, a lot of people tend to be afraid to use online dating sites. And if you think about it, once considered taboo, online dating has become a much more commonplace practice amongst daters. And while many people have a more positive view of online dating, others fail to see the benefits, and a lot of it is because of those shenanigans that we do hear about. And despite the differences in opinion about people who use these platforms, there's no doubt that usage is on the rise. And recent data has shown that 1 in 10 Americans have used a dating site or mobile app, and 23% have met their spouse or long-term partner through such sites. 
Furthermore, 38% of Americans who are single and are actively looking for partners have used online dating at one point or another, and 5% of Americans who are currently married or are in a long-term partnership have met their partners online. And this is all data from the Pew poll. Well, that's good to hear. And I know it worked for you. I know you're very public about how you met your husband online. I dated online for many, many years. I met men who I went out once with, you know, like the one and done. I met men I went out with for a few months. There were a few guys I went out with for more than a year. But actually for me, ultimately, I met my husband in person. So I'm curious about third-party research, so not the research that the dating sites have, have generated and sponsored, but the research that people like you, uh, who are not influenced by, by their monies and interests, <laughs> um, what you all have found about the longevity the, of the relationships that come together through these online dating apps and platforms. Do they last long term typically? Do you know? <laughs> have you, do you have um, information about that? Well, you share? bring up a really, really great point about uh, research that is sponsored by the dating sites because you know, each dating site will give you tons of statistics to tell you how successful that site is, um, which I think is very funny. But there, there is some third-party research, but the research is really, really mixed. And a lot of the research is not even, it's looking at the satisfaction that's derived from these relationships. So, for example, there was one study that was done in 2014 by Paul, and it showed that people who meet online are less likely to get married. But it's important to note that this particular study focused mostly on same-sex couples who, at the time of the study, could not legally get married, which kind uh, of explains those results. It does, and, yes. <laughs> right, right. So it's a major limitation, and as such, it makes it difficult to interpret the results in terms of what's going on in relationships now. Other research uh, paints a very different picture. So, for example, uh, there was a study in 2013 by Kakiopo and colleagues where the researchers found that marriages that began online were less likely to end in divorce and were associated with higher mar marital satisfaction. So, you see these like different studies that paint completely different pictures. So, so which is it? And um, this is not coming from any data that I've collected. This is just looking at other people's studies and my general impressions of online dating. I think that being that the results are mixed, it's really important to think about the actual process of online dating and how it may be similar to and or different from dating in real life. Now, I contend that online dating it's not actually changing the satisfaction derived from relationships or their likelihood of success. I think it's just altering the process of courtship. So provided that you don't create some sort of pen pal relationship with the person who you meet online, you wind up connecting with him or her in person after a few introductory emails and online communications. So as a result, while that relationship began online, that's just your access point. Your real relationship is built once you interact face-to-face -face and you're learning more about one another as you date. So when we talk about the success or the longevity of relationships, I think we should focus less on 
online versus in real life, it's more about the individual differences of the couples. And that's not going to, the way in which they meet isn't going to make as much of a difference. That makes sense. So I guess what you're saying is online dating platforms are certainly a way to, a good way to meet people and that people shouldn't shy away from that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there there are different types of websites that I think can kind of reach everyone's needs. I mean, you have some of the swipe-based sites like Tinder and you have uh, sites that focus more on their, you know, matching algorithms and the quizzes that they give you and some sites are way more time consuming like eHarmony and you know depending upon the approach that you're looking for you can find a site that suits your needs. There seem to be new apps and sites coming online all the time these days so you really (laughs) do need to spend good time just uh evaluating what might be a fit for your personality and and who's on it and how many people are you know trend going on that site these days oh for sure yeah so and they meet like every single type of of lifestyle i mean i've seen you know new dating sites focused on people who have dogs and um people who love music people who love to farm like you know whatever your lifestyle is there is some way that you can connect with another person and you don't have to wind up marrying the person you meet or even having a long-term relationship with a person for the site to have been a success. You might go on the dating site and just learn a little bit more about what you yourself want in a relationship. And if that's the case, then your experience with that website or app is a success in and of itself. That is a great point. So let's talk about what we want because women tend to create lists of non-negotiables. These non-negotiables you know, are things we just need that guy uh, to have these qualities and characteristics and we'll only go out with him if he has these characteristics. Otherwise, we'll move on and look for somebody else. So please share your take on the pros and cons of creating and sticking to these lists as one is out there in the dating world. Well, having a list of non-negotiables It's good in a way because it actually shows that you've given some sort of thought to what you're looking for in a relationship, which is great, right? You're going into the process informed of what you want and hopefully with what will make you happy. So I guess on the pro side, you know what works for you. And this is kind of where that whole like self-awareness piece comes in. And a common misconception in relationship is that opposites attract, but it's actually birds of a feather that flock together. So when you have this list of non-negotiables, going in with that information, you can essentially filter out based upon qualities that you yourself have and that are important to you when finding a mate. Now on the opposite side, the cons of having a list of non-negotiables is that you might be focusing so much on that list and checking off certain boxes that you might be robbing yourself of meeting a genuine person whose values and morals match up with yours and might make a wonderful partner, but they just don't make the cut when filtering on something more superficial. So for example, let's say you filter out a person based upon their financial background or their educational background, which, you know, if that's important to you, fine, but you might be missing out on seeing some profiles of people who, if you had met them in real life, you'd actually have a strong connection with. Right. 
and you're doing yourself a disservice then. Right. Because you, your life could be enriched by that person who you might meet if you didn't have that criteria, right? Right. So I think it's important to kind of think about, go through everything that you would want in a partner and really think about which are my non-negotiables and which of them am I more likely to, you know, not care about as much if I met a really wonderful person. Good advice. With online dating and dating apps, clearly there are so many faces and profiles you can read. And what that means is we have so much choice these days. I think choice can be a good thing and choice can be a bad thing too. Talk to us about this choice, this abundance of choice, I guess, and and how that plays out in the dating world, please. Yeah, well, choice can seem really wonderful at the outset. Like, look at all these potential partners that I can date. It can get very, very overwhelming, and it can lead to burnout on the dating sites. And you also have this idea of paradox of choice, which is basically when we have so much choice, it makes it even more difficult to come to a final decision. Not only that, but in sifting through that choice or or the potential matches that we have, we wind up focusing on more superficial characteristics. So we might be focusing on, let's say, the color of a person's hair rather than, well, do we really share the same outlook on life? So having choice can kind of work against us in many ways. And if you start to feel that this is the case, Perhaps it's time to either stop using the dating site, not entirely, but maybe like take a pause or tend or, or maybe focus on one of those slow dating sites where they wind up curating matches and giving you fewer profiles rather than just swiping through hundreds of profiles in an hour. That's good advice as well, because it can be overwhelming. And for some women, I think it kind of feels like a job, a second job. Dating fatigue is a real thing. It's a real thing. Okay. I didn't know it was a real (laughs) thing, but you're a scientist and you say it's a real (laughs) thing. So, So that's great to know. I want to turn to something you've written in your book. In your book, you wrote that, I'm going to quote you now, we base our self-evaluation off of close relationships and that the success of someone close, such as a significant other, may make us feel threatened. I understand this to mean that if a woman is in a relationship and she experiences more success during the relationship or or even maybe going into the relationship than in her career, for example, than her partner, um, her partner may lessen his perception of his own self-worth. And this can have a detrimental impact on the long-term viability of the relationship. Can you speak to that scientific discovery first off? And then secondly, How should women factor in this dynamic, this psychological dynamic into how they decide who to date? Well, this is definitely a real phenomenon, which is unfortunate. And this actually comes from Tesser's self-evaluation maintenance model. And it basically states that we base our self-evaluation off of close relationships, as you had mentioned. And 
there's a gender difference that comes into play here. So research has shown that males do report lower self-esteem when their girlfriends score high on tests. And this effect isn't something that they're always conscious of. So they don't know that it's, they don't necessarily know that it's damaging their self-esteem. Women, on the other hand, don't seem to be affected in the same way. Women are more likely to experience something known as reflected glory, which is when we kind of bask in the success of others. So women are more likely to show a boost in their own self-esteem when their male partner does well or succeeds. So my partner got a raise, got a promotion, so not only do I feel good for him, but I myself feel good. And this may in part be because women are more likely to view themselves as part of the relationship. And therefore, that's why they feel that success when one of the members succeeds. This is compared to men who use that success of the other as a standard by which he himself needs to compare himself to. So it's kind of like the bar was just raised and that's why it might be damaging to his self-esteem. Other research has shown that when men rate hypothetical women that they would want to date just based upon a story or like a vignette, they would want to pick someone very, very intelligent. However, when it comes to going on actual dates, they're more likely to get threatened by that intelligent woman and then back down. So when we hear this, it's kind of upsetting. And people ask me, well, you know, what should I do? Should I hide the fact that I'm CEO of a company or that, you know, I've got this really uh, wonderful job and a lot of success in my personal and professional life? And absolutely not, because if you change who you are for another person and you enter the relationship kind of like under these false pretenses, you're always going to be, you're always going to feel afraid to reveal the true you. And you're going to want to find someone and just hold out until you find that person that really values you for who you are. You can't go into a relationship pretending that you are someone you're not because it won't last, right? Right, right. You're always going to have to pretend to keep this ruse up and that's just not sustainable. Right. And then you're miserable, as you said, that it just isn't, it isn't the right way to go. It is unfortunate that, well the findings are as they are and and the behavior is as as you've described the preference i guess but i guess it's just a reality we have to face and work with as women right i mean in a lot of my personal research as well i find that on early in early dating experiences people tend to go back to very gender stereotypical roles in heterosexual relationships where like the man is a provider and the man is one who initiates the date and the woman is the one who accepts the dates and you know this is unfortunate we think you know times are changing so why isn't this changing and it eventually will But in order for that social and cultural change to start affecting our behaviors, it takes some time and and it will get there. What makes you think it'll get there? I'm hoping (laughs) cautious optimism. (laughs) I mean, I mean, no, I mean, you start to you see this in these gender stereotypical patterns in, in heterosexual relationships. But a lot of times people are expressing frustration about them. And they, they, they appear to slowly be changing. It's not as quick as we want that change to happen, but it seems like we are drifting away from them a little. Okay. We'll see what the future brings. We'll <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and how your cautious optimism plays out. And I, it's great. 
that you have that optimism and, and you're seeing the data and you're studying what's happening. So, so that's terrific. Gender signals, attraction and connection clearly are so important to uh, what brings people together. But these signals that we put off, these gender signals, was there anything you've uncovered about attraction signals that surprised you? So in one of my early studies, I actually looked at different behaviors that were happening on dates and what this signals to the people on the date. Because there's a difference between what you yourself are feeling like, oh, this is great. I'd like to go out on a second date or I really like this person. I'm attracted to them. And then how you feel about how that other person feels about you. Yeah, I know that's very confusing, but like you're, you're what what you're perceiving of as their interest in you. So is this person going to pursue me? Are they going to ask me out again? And um, we kind of just touched on one of those really surprising findings. And that was how we do tend to go back to very gender stereotypical roles. Where, um, for example, you start to see that men are the ones who want to be in the driver's seat. So women view men offering to pay for them as a signal that he likes her. And women also view when men call them right away to schedule a second date as a signal of attraction, which makes sense. But men don't want women to be the initiators. So men didn't view it as a positive when a woman would call them to initiate the second date. Instead, they wanted the women to wait for them to initiate that date and then just respond right away. So you see that there's kind of this this gender divide, which we still kind of fall into. So that was one thing that was very surprising to me. Another thing is that out of all of the behaviors that I listed, and just to kind of give you some context, some of the behaviors that I had are, you know, your partner doesn't return your phone call within a few days, and your partner doesn't return your phone call ever. So I had some like, you know, very negative things in there. And out of all of those behaviors, men didn't seem to view anything negatively in terms of signaling disinterest on the part of the woman. And um, I found that kind of shocking and surprising, but I think that kind of is a reflection of what's going on in the dating world and the process of courtship today. And, And what I mean by that is so many people are meeting one another online that I think that it's not that men are missing the signals. Of course, I need to collect further data to verify this. I think it's that men are just adopting a really healthy attitude wherein that if a woman doesn't call him back or doesn't respond to his advances via phone or email, it's not signaling that she doesn't like him, but maybe it's just something else. Maybe she was a few dates ahead with another person and she's chosen to pursue that individual rather than him. So they're just not taking things as personally. I find this fascinating, actually. That's so interesting. So how do you think women should factor what you've just shared into their actual dating practices? Now, this is data and that I collected. And of course, when, when I present it, um, it's data that... I personally just take issue with and how it applies to my own dating life. Um, I actually, uh, anecdotally, uh, you know, after I went on the first date with my, with my current husband, 
I texted him right away and I said, I had a really great time. Now, according to the study and from, I believe it was about 300 people that I polled in this study, that would have been very bad because in that case, I am being essentially the initiator by having that first follow-up text. And, you know, he still tells me that he just loved that because I broke the mold of what everyone else was doing, where he felt that the pressure was all on him to set up the dates and then pursue a person for another date, that he was just pleasantly surprised. And he said, sometimes it's just great to get that response from another person and and know that they too enjoyed the date. So it's important to remember that while you can take information from these studies, it's, we can't really draw these broad generalizations and just because it, it you know this bears out in the data for a group of people it's not necessarily how you should choose to live your life and you've got to do some do what's comfortable for you do what's comfortable for you yes that is probably the right advice for our listeners uh, the data is helpful but uh, your life example is a perfect one you went against the data. Uh, (laughs) You did what felt right for you and you ended up developing a loving and and, uh, lasting uh, lifelong commitment based relationship with your husband. So, So there's Marissa, the scientist, and Marissa, the practitioner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, that's Sometimes fair. they're at odds. Sometimes right. they're at odds. <laughs> <laughs> but even so, the information you have shared to, uh, today has been really interesting. And I know it's going to prove very helpful for our listeners today. I want to thank you so much for joining me this episode and for sharing all your your insights. For our listeners, I want them to know that your book is available through the First Date Story Shop, which we've recently launched. It's a curated collection of our favorite dating and self-care related items that we've discovered. Your book is also on your website, which everybody should go and visit after listening to this episode because there's other interesting information there as well. And the website's URL is Marissa T. Cohen, M-A-R-I-S-A-T-C-O-H-E-N.com. They can also find your book on Amazon. And for those of you who want to read more of the articles that Marissa has published on First Date Stories, you can do that by going to firstdatestories.com forward slash author forward slash Marissa. So before we sign off, Marissa, I know you do a lot of public speaking and you have recorded some videos as well. You're very active in this field. If our listeners want to learn more about your discoveries and stay up to speed on your research or hear you speak. Uh, in addition to going to First Date Stories and your website, uh, where else they, can they find you? So you can definitely follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and all of those social links are posted on my website. And um, I would love to hear from all of you. Okay. Thank you again so much. It's been a treat to have you join me on this episode. Thank you for having me. 
What did you think of this episode and especially the scientific findings that Marissa shared? Please go to firstdatestories.com forward slash podcast to post your comments and listen to more episodes. And if there are other topics you'd like us to cover, let us know by going to the contact page on our website and sending us a note. And now for the legalese. This podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only and is not intended as professional advice for our listeners. We suggest that you always consult with your own personal coaches and advisors. First Date Stories does not recommend or endorse or object to the views or topics expressed on this podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast at firstdatestories.com, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. First Date Stories, the podcast, is produced and edited by Kim Paletti and Lisa Gray of Soundvine Productions and is brought to you by Espoir Ventures. Thanks for listening.